All right, let's go to John chapter 17 as we continue our series through the gospel according to John. I'll read verses 6 through 10 this morning. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 6, the Bible says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. This entire chapter is our Lord praying. And you may remember last week how I highlighted that in this prayer, Jesus prays about 20% of the time for Himself. 80% is dedicated to praying for others. And I believe we need to learn from Christ's example that we could be doing a better job of praying for others. And I didn't get into this last week, but a way in which we can make our prayers less about ourselves and more about others is when we understand that praying is not so we can get man's will done in heaven, but it's that we might have God's will done upon the earth. In Luke eleven two, 2, Jesus said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. And once we grasp this, our prayer life will be greatly helped. Once we seek for God's will in all things, the name it and claim it movement doesn't make any more sense. This idea that God exists to do whatever we ask Him. But once we learn to pray God's will, we see things a little bit differently. We'll find Jesus here shortly after, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Even if that meant the cross, which He knew it did, not what I will, But what is your will? What we typically do is we pray for others and ourselves to be removed from trouble that we are going through. That we would be spared from tribulation and persecutions and trials and temptations. And by that I mean testings. That we would be somehow removed from all these things that we go through, not realizing that on the other side of that, God has a reward waiting on us. And we must remember that God always sees the end from the beginning. And the cross that we're called to bear, it is for our good and for God's glory. We sometimes try to command God to do things our way. But He's the potter. And we're just the clay. And we don't get to bark at God how we think He ought to be doing things all the time. 
We have to learn to yield ourselves to God's will in order that He would be glorified to the fullest in our life. And just think about how arrogant we can be in our prayer life when we think we have the right to tell God what He should do and how He should do it. But what happens is people will yank a promise out of the Word of God and they'll smash it to the fridge. This is what I'm claiming. This is what I'm praying. And God, if you don't come through for me, I'm going to be upset. And if you don't do this or that, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm sure God's really scared by your threat. But we've seen it happen here. Similar situations. I've heard statements similar to this. I'm so mad at God, I'm not coming to church anymore. I've tried God and I've tried church. And God, you aren't doing what I've claimed and what I'm praying. And they pout like a little child who doesn't get their way. Some try to treat God like He's a great Santa Claus up in the sky. Because they really didn't want a sovereign, ruling, and reigning God. God, I was being good, and You didn't give me what I asked for. What happens is they keep backing further and further away from God. They will withdraw from church. They'll start to cut off any spiritual activities they were doing. They'll begin to withdraw from friends, Christian friends that is. And they just get more and more bitter towards God as a result. And it's like they think that if they can pitch a fit loud enough that God will come running over to them and pat them on the head, give them their binky and their passy, and just pat them and rock them and say, I'm so sorry, my child. I'll try to do better next time. How foolish. Our Lord in this chapter, He's showing us the right way to pray. When He does pray for Himself, He's praying, Lord, glorify Thou me that I might glorify You. And then he prays for others the rest of his time. Now, last week I zeroed in on the first phrase of verse 6 where Jesus says, I have manifested thy name. And my application last week was simply this. This is the essence of the Christian life. This is why you're here. This is why you're upon this earth. This is why after you're saved and baptized, you don't go on to heaven. We don't hold you under and drown you. Because God has a purpose for your life, and that purpose is that you would make him manifest to those around you. We're to make God known. Regardless of what God calls you to do in this life, and regardless of where He leads you to fulfill that calling, the bottom line is this. You're to make God known. For just a moment, I want to return to that phrase, I have manifested thy name. I didn't get it fully described last week. To manifest God doesn't solely mean that Jesus was preaching about God to make God known. But to better understand, it's not only that He was preaching to make God known, but His life was making God known. If you look at the Greek word for manifest here, it's, you can see where we might get our English word fan. And it's the shining forth of something. It's the spreading forth of something. And Jesus here says, I have manifested 
thy name. He not only spoke about God, he not only preached about God, but his life demonstrated God. He lived it. He lived out who God was. They had seen God by seeing Jesus. Remember in chapter 14 that Jesus said to Philip, He that has seen me hath seen the Father. It's one thing to speak of God, but it's another thing entirely to live your life where others see God. That's a great challenge. This was the problem with the religious Pharisees. They preached about God. They claimed that they knew God. But their actions did not show that they knew God. Their actions were not manifesting God's character. Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 1.16 that there are those who will profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. This is the great problem today. We have many who are professing that they know God, but they do not manifest God in their lives. The world is left with a view of Christianity that they must believe in a God who can't even change you. And so instead of running to Christians for the answer, they go running to this religion or that doctrine, seeking for what is my problem in life and why can't I Change. We could even bring this down to the family level as we think about how effective we would be if we were manifesting God. Not just in our witnessing to others. What about in our homes? Dads, do your children see the nature of God in how you live? If they had to make a determination on the Heavenly Father based upon you, what would they conclude? I won't get into the details right now, but I can tell you I saw God in my dad. And it helped me tremendously to understand the adoption of sons. Moms, do your children hunger after the things of God because of your tenderness, because of your godliness, because of your love? Can they sense the Father's embrace when you embrace your children? Or parents, will your children grow up to say, I don't ever want anything to do with spiritual things. And as soon as I can, I'm getting out of this house and I'm never going back to church. Are you manifesting God's nature in your family? When Peter, James, and John were on the mountain with Jesus and Jesus was transfigured before them, Peter said, it's good for us to be here. Amen. Peter later recounted in 2 Peter 1.16 that they were eyewitnesses of His majesty, that they had realized that He had received honor and glory. Can members of your family, can your co-workers, can your friends, can your classmates look at you and observe your life and ask, where do you go to church? What makes you different? There's just something about you that makes me want to have what you have. Can you show me how to get to that mountaintop? 
Or would they ask, where did you say you go to church? So as not to attend. Because they see no difference. (laughs) Would they look for answers about life in a different area because of your contradictory life? And listen, if you want others to listen to you, then your life is going to have to manifest God. Because what some will do in their zeal is they will come down on people about some sinfulness. They'll come down on them about their lack of godliness. And they're not going to listen to you because you're not shining forth the presence of God. But when you're living right, you can point out sin and they'll listen. Because God is being manifested through you. Listen, I'm not saying they're going to agree with you necessarily, but they will listen. We can point to Moses as an example. Moses went up upon Mount Sinai to receive the law. He was in the presence of God. When he came down off that mountain, the Bible says that his face shined. It's a picture of how he was manifesting God's presence. And in that condition, though he needed to put a veil on his face because the people couldn't bear it. In that condition of having been in the presence of God, manifesting God's presence, he could come down off that mountain and he could tell a people who just earlier were worshiping a golden calf, were committing all kinds of iniquity, he could look at them and he could give them the law of God, he could give them the commandments, and they would listen. You see, we want to give the commandments, but we give it harshly. Because we haven't been in the presence of God. We're not manifesting God. But when we've been in the presence of God and we have God shining upon us, now you can point out sin. And you can give the weight of the law. And you can look at them and say, Thou shalt have no other God beside me. And they can receive it. And what happened in the case of Israel is after Moses did that and he came down off the mountain and gave them the law... They brought an offering for the work of the tabernacle, and they got to work. They were just earlier sinning. I'm afraid many times we give the law of God and the requirements in such a bad tone that people tune us out because our attitude reveals we have not been with God. These are those who will resent God's Word and will reject you and your pharisaical attitude. And if it's like this in your home, then your children will grow up rebelling. It's hard enough. If you're like this out and about, your friends will start leaving. If you're like this on the job, your employees will quit. Whatever the relationship is, it'll always backfire when you don't manifest God in the process. But when we manifest God properly, we can have similar results like that of verse 7. Look at that. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. When we only give the word without living the word in our lives, then there is a suspicion as to the source. The one in doubt may conclude, well, that's just your opinion. Or that's only a man-made book. And they can draw these conclusions Because there's no tangible proof to support your testimony. 
Is everybody okay that I'm calling you to a higher standard? And listen, I'm not talking about doctrines in general that they'll understand. What I'm talking about is, can they see in you that you are not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation and they can look at your life and they can tell there is something different in your life. When we can put all this together, when we can have proof that backs up our claim, there will be those along the way who will conclude that all you have given me must be of the Father. And I can see it being worked out in your life. We're not always going to have a verse 7 experience, amen. But there will be some along the way that will say, you know what, it must be from God. So how are you doing at manifesting God to others? Can you preach Christ in such a way? Can you preach like Moses, where it is evident you've been with God? Does your life match your message? Now we could stop there and have altar call, but I got one more point to make. With the time remaining, I want to draw your attention to the end of verse 6 and verse 8. Let me read those all together. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. They have kept thy word. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Just real quick here, I want to make mention that God's love gift to man was Christ. Hallelujah. And then God's love gift to Christ is the believers. Let that sink in. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. How precious must we be in the sight of God that He would give you as a gift to Christ. And how precious must Christ think we are that He would go to the cross. And I mention that because I hear so often, I don't know if God really loves me. Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross. What was the joy? It was us. It was being reunited back with the Father. Hallelujah. Now, I want you to notice how these men became Christ's gift. We see at the end of verse 6 that they kept God's Word, and in verse 8 they had received His words, and at the end of verse 8 they believed it was God who sent Christ. Now, I think it's... I'm thankful for the day and age in which I live, okay? But if we put ourselves back in that day, the first century, these men were living in the days that the prophets longed to see. I mean, it would have been an exciting time to live. These are exciting times. That would have been an exciting time to live. Moses and the law spoke of Christ. The Psalms speak of Christ. The prophets foretold of Christ. And there was always a hopeful expectation with every generation that this might be the generation in which the Messiah arrives. We can identify with that because I believe we're thinking, man, I hope we're the generation that Christ comes back. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Cheat death? They were living in the days that the prophets had longed to see. 
They were the ones who got to witness the arrival of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12 through 12 say, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves... But unto us they did minister. Unto us, the first century Christians, they did minister to the things which are now reported unto you. We saw Him. John would say at the beginning of uh, 1 John, the word of life which we have seen and we have handled, we have heard and we have touched. They saw the Christ. The prophets had been looking, they have been searching For all that they foretold that it would come to pass in their lifetime, they knew that He was the way, but they didn't get to physically see Him during their lifetime. But it was this generation of apostles who enjoyed the presence of Christ upon this earth. What a time that must have been. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 17, For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not seen heard them. And Jesus said, look, you are blessed to be living in this day in which the Christ has arrived. What was it then that they had kept? What was it that they had received? What was it that they had believed? It was that this man, Jesus, was the Christ, the only begotten Son of God. They had faith that Jesus was sent from God to deliver them from their sins, to bring them eternal life. In John chapter 6, verses 67 through 69, Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew 16, verses 15 through 17, He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The words these men kept was that Jesus was the Savior. Which meant they understood they could not save themselves because they were sinners. They recognized that they had fallen short of the glory of God and no amount of their self-righteousness could ever save them. Now it's true at this point, they didn't quite understand all that this was going to entail in regards to Christ's suffering. But they understood enough to know that they were hell-deserving sinners in need of a Savior. Now, this Greek word for kept, it's a military term. It means to guard, like a military fortress. Cities at one time had an area they called the keep. It means to hold fast. They took all the evidence as it were. They took all of that in and they concluded Jesus was the Christ. And they held on to this truth. Now let me ask you, for those who are waiting on you to manifest God and you say you know Christ, would they be able to come to that conclusion? 
would they be able to conclude by your life that Jesus is the Christ? Would they run to that? Jesus also said they received the words He gave to them, which means they accepted it. They got a hold of it. They seized it. Jesus said they believed that God had sent Him. To believe means they placed their faith in this. They placed their trust in this. They believed that He was God in the flesh. So they were gifted to Christ because they heard the message, they received it as truth, they believed that Jesus was the Christ, and they kept this truth, or they held it fast, nothing wavering. And understand that these men belonged to Christ not because they were worthy men, but because they understood that they were unworthy. That apart from Christ, they were nothing. And some might read, since they kept God's Word, that somehow they had earned their salvation. That's the farthest thing from the truth, because we know the Bible says that we're not saved by works. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If we could earn it, we could boast about it. And God said, that ain't going to happen with my salvation. These men didn't earn salvation, but they simply believed. They had faith in Christ alone for salvation. You may recall in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were in Philippi. They were obviously preaching Christ. Long story short, the town got mad at them. They arrested them, they laid many stripes upon them, and they threw them in jail because of their faith. Well, at about midnight, they had a singspiration. They began praising God. The prisoners could hear them, and as they're singing, the Bible says suddenly there was a great earthquake. And the prison was shaken at its foundation. And the doors opened up. And if that wasn't miraculous enough, their chains fell off as well. And they're standing there, nobody left. I know me, I'd have been like... (laughs) Nobody leaves and the jailer wakes up and he realizes nobody's locked up anymore, I'm in big trouble. He takes out his sword and he's going to kill himself. And Paul and Silas, do thyself no harm for we're all here. And the jailer asks for a light and he, he comes in and he sees Paul and Silas and he, he falls down before them. And he brings them outside and he looks at Paul and Silas and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they didn't tell the jailer, well, you're going to have to work You're going to have to do enough good works in your life that it'll weigh out the bad works. No, that wasn't the answer. They didn't say, well, we're going to have to baptize you. They didn't say you're going to have to join a church or you're going to have to give so much. But they said in Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. All He needed to do was 
places faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. He simply received what he knew to be true and he kept it. And friend, I want to tell you this morning, that's all anyone needs to do to be saved. It's not a checklist. It's not some formula. It's simple faith. Believing that Jesus is who this this Bible says that He is. That He was sent from God. That He died in our place. And that He shed His blood for our sins. And I want to ask you this morning as I close, have you done this? Listen, I'm not asking if you think you've done this. So many today, even in independent Baptist churches, they come in for help. The first thing I deal with is salvation. Do you know that you're saved? Boy, I hope so. I think so. No, 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 no. That's not why Jesus came to die and bleed. He did not come so that you may think that you're saved. He did not come so that you can hope that you're saved. But He came so that we could know that we're saved. These things have I written on you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And I'm not asking, when I ask if you're saved or not, I don't want you to sit there and tell me, well, I think so. Don't you step into eternity thinking. And I'm not asking if you hope you're saved. Listen, I can tell you this morning that I know that I know that I've been bought with a price. I'm not asking if you're a good enough person. I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you're a member of a church. But have you been saved by believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Acts 4.12 tells us, Neither is there salvation in in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And all you must do is keep this truth, receive this truth, and believe this truth. It's that simple. It's that simple. So are you saved this morning? Maybe there's one here this morning that's asking, what must I do to be saved? All you must do is believe. Call upon God. Asking Him to forgive you of your sins. Believing that He's the propitiation for your sins. John chapter 3 verses 16 through 18 it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Every head bowed, every eye closed.